We're back to the Total Celebrity Show on the Total Education Network. Again, TotalTutor.net for more information. Twitter, TotalTutor, Neil S. Haley, Facebook, LinkedIn, Neil Haley, Instagram, TotalTutor, Pinterest, Neil Haley, and Google Plus, Neil Haley. And uh, this is definitely an author's corner segment as well. And to talk about this man and specifically how he's changed many different sports. Uh, he's a tremendous entrepreneur, uh, ama- amazing guy for sure. Uh, he is the senior vice president of the Orlando Magic. He's now a member of the Basketball Hall of Fame. And he wrote a book that's very, very interesting. 21 Great Leaders. Learn Their Lessons, Improve in th- Your Influence. Pat Williams. Pat, thanks for calling and how are you? Neil, I'm doing very well, and I appreciate the invitation. Look forward to our visit here. Oh, absolutely, Pat. And and thinking about why write this book? I mean, I mean, you're an author like almost seventy books. What gave you the idea for this book? I've always been fascinated with with leadership, Neil, and uh, I speak about it a great deal, and have written about it uh, many times, but. Uh, the, the real issue here was uh, to examine who we felt were the 21 most impactful leaders of history, you know, the last couple hundred years of history, and uh, what can we learn from them? More importantly, what lessons can we pass on to to our generation uh, based on the, the leadership style or the leadership effort of of these legends? So we, we did a chapter on each one of them. And then at the end of each chapter, we list three or four or five uh, leadership points or lessons that you can take and apply in your world of leadership. So there, there are a few aspects to this book that I think are different and unusual. And above all, you get a look, a really deep look at the 21 leaders we feel, you know, are the most significant that have crossed our paths or, or you know, or, the, or have been out there or are still out there. Uh, definitely, Pat. And when I was looking at the list, they are from a variety of backgrounds and, and social aspects as leaders in different fields. So that's the interesting part of this. And that bitch, they all have some similar qualities, don't they? Yes, they do, Bill. And I'm convinced that, uh, or Neil, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm convinced that uh, there's seven qualities that it takes to be a great leader, uh, seven ingredients that uh, all great leaders have, whether uh, currently or, uh, you know, from history, vision, <clears throat> communication, people skills, character, competence, boldness, and a serving heart. So, so that's what we believe uh, really it takes to be a complete leader, and uh, that's what the point really I think that we're trying to get across in this book and examine these different leaders uh, based on their greatest strength as a leader. Definitely, the, the, the greatest strength uh, as a leader, and 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 I, and I like uh, the the part you talk about servant, a servant's heart to ba- basically go out there and know uh, even as you're leading millions of people possibly, or 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 as many people, you always have that idea that you're willing to serve and help. I mean, because you're not going to be inspired by a leader if they're not going out there and trying to do what you're doing or understanding what you're doing, right? Neil, let's talk about that whole issue of a a serving-hearted leader. Uh, The the mindset of a serving-hearted leader is this. It's it's not about me. It's about you. It's not about um, building my resume. It's about building yours. It's not about advancing my career goals, but it's about advancing yours. 
it's not about my success, but it's the success of you and, and this organization that I'm leading. I, I really believe that's how a serving-hearted leader thinks. Uh, he or she is not there to dominate people, uh, to intimidate them. Uh, to um, browbeat them, maneuver them, manipulate no. them. That's not that's not the thinking, but it's always, you know, how, how can I best serve? And when a leader really grasps that concept, Neil, and puts it into practice, oh boy, that's when families change, and that's when uh, organizations change for the better. That's when nations change. I I just don't think we can put enough emphasis on the the heart of service that great leaders possess. I, I, I agree. Where do you think you learned this quality? What time period? Because think about the teams that you've been able to help grow to winners and looking at specifically finding the right players and cogs in certain organizations you've been involved with and all the way down to your days in baseball, especially learning from great leaders. How, where do you think you learned that that quality? Because I think that I find that fascinating and interesting. Because you look at two of the leaders, Mother Teresa and Pope John Paul II, are on that list, and that could surprise people for for. And I wanted to jump into that because that really interests me for sure. You know, they they certainly would model uh, a serving-hearted leadership. Probably it came to a head for me, Neil, in my four years as the general manager of the Phillies Farm Club in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, one of the owners of our team was a man named R. E. Littlejohn, who was really in the in the oil transportation business, but uh, loved baseball. And but as I spent those four years with him, it was uh, very obvious that this was a man with a serving-hearted mentality. Yes, uh, people would come to visit with him. You know, pastors or businessmen or sports people or coaches and. You know, just to sit at his feet and learn from him and study and, you know, and and have him help them. Uh, I mean, he did this constantly, and I saw it, and I watched it, and I and I noticed I didn't have a word for it then, but that was a serving-hearted mentality as a leader. I saw it there for those four years I was with him. He didn't talk about it. He didn't uh, have a name for it, but he was practicing serving-hearted leadership constantly. And as I look back now, I can see that it was modeled in front of me for those four years. And you were willing to work hard and and work hard for him. And I think that that's that's the key component. When you know that your leader is caring for everyone on the team, people are more willing to go the extra mile for you. They're more willing to do what it takes that's necessary. But when there's just fear, a lot of times fear leads to hesitancy and not you know, stepping up the game for your team, for sure. Well, well phrased, Neil, well phrased. You're not going to really do a good job if you're constantly intimidated or fearful of your owner or your, your boss. You know, that's a, not, a, not a pleasant feeling to run around with a knot in your stomach all the time. Um, we, we've got a serving-hearted leader now in, in our owner, uh, prime owner, Rich DeVos, he is the co-founder of the Amway organization and uh, models and practices serving-hearted leadership constantly, not just with his work with Amway, but uh, we, we see it here with the basketball team. Uh, that is ex- exactly how he goes about it. And when, when, you, when you have a serving-hearted leader, boy, you, you want to do the job for them. You work extra hard. Yeah, you, you really want to please that man or that woman. 
uh, simply because uh, of their serving-hearted approach, and, and uh, they, uh, they, they just set a standard that makes you want to really, really produce results for them. And, and that's fascinating. And then there's seven areas which you talked about in your listing. And I, I, w- I want to go into specifically one of those areas and what that leader brings to the table. Because, I mean, everything. I think one, if we go from serving, but ultimately you're not going to be successful in business if you don't have a vision. Visionaries are people who can come up with an idea that's different than anybody else's idea and have the right team in place to be successful. You need all those skills, you said, to be a great leader. And vision, you talked about vision. Well, I the one person I bring up is Sam Walton and how much of a visionary he was. And I'm sure you mentioned that in the book for sure in, in, in the whole process of vision. Sam Walton is a good a good leader to study, uh, Neil. There's no question about it. Yeah, you know, he had a vision you know that little store of his up in northwest arkansas and uh, and now the the worldwide empire uh, did, did sam see all that listen he probably did uh, he he had a, a big time vision and and that's what great leaders have uh, he was able to communicate the vision there's no question about it and mr sam had remarkable people skills uh, he was a man of character you know there were there were no Character flaws in his makeup, right? And the, and then competent, yeah, very. He had competence and boldness. Listen, you're not going to build a, 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 a empire like Walmart without a lot of bold decisions. And then the serving heart. I I, I study Sam Walton. I think he he really possessed that. He was a seven sided leader, Neil. And and worthy and worthy of studying. Well, I, I saw a documentary on him and everything, and we hear certain things about Walmart. But ultimately, what he tries to do is why it's a success. He looked at the customer. He looked at what's going to be best for the customer to, to make it easier, so that people that are not making as much money can still afford and be able to have other other money in their pocket, and plus uh, provide the right place uh, to grow in, in, in certain ways as a family in certain things. So it's really interesting to look at all these leaders. And always, here's the funny part, if we, we go through that list of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Harry S. Truman, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, that some of these leaders, Nelson Mandela, were not liked by everyone. So that I don't know if, I don't know if that that where, where we put that in that uh, situation. I think being bold because if you're not bold and willing to continue to persevere through hard tasks and 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 have this belief it's going to be successful, you're going to give up if you have naysayers, right? Well, I think uh, yeah, you you've got to make tough decisions, and and with that, you're going to have some disappointed people and. People who are not going to like it, but at the end of the day, I think George W. hit it on the head years back in uh, in Washington when he said, "I'm the decider. <laughs> I decide what's right." Well, that's that's what leaders have to do. If you, if you don't have a decider there, someone who's willing to make bold decisions, you know that organization is is not going anywhere. And uh, George W. took severe criticism, but he never backed down. And that's what we notice with great leaders, uh, Neil. They they make those tough calls, those tough decisions, and have learned to live with them. And uh, they're not worried about their popularity. Um, if if you if that's what's driving you, popularity, 
I don't think you're going to be a very effective leader. No, no. And, and I think that's the biggest problem because you have to look what's best for your organization, for you and, and, and the public and have success because at times some people aren't going to like you. And, and, and that's just life. You can't please everyone. And, and then that goes back to another leader that you put out there, Mother Teresa. Uh, there were people that did not like her. You know, and she uh, she had to struggle many times to being persecuted and going through certain things just to continue for her vision that a lot of people around her, because I saw her biography as well. So there's certain people I really have a good understanding of and that, that they looked at her like she was she was foolish. What are you thinking? You need to get out of the streets of Calcutta and and go to a, a nice place and be safe. You're never going to get the money needed for for your for your for your missions and all these different uh, charity of charity charitable things, and he she had the faith in God that it would happen, and it did. Yeah, that's uh, that's well phrased, Neil. And you know, she was uh, reporting to a party of one. She was there to to serve the Lord. Uh, that was her calling, and uh, she knew there would be critics and and those who would demean what she was doing. But I don't think it really. Uh, affected her you know she was there to do god's work on the earth and that's that was her calling and uh, she set an example for all of us about serving others uh i think you could read and study her life and come away much better for it by the way john wooden the great ucla coach had two life heroes abraham lincoln and mother Teresa. oh wow uh, the the third one was billy graham but those are the three people that Coach Wooden really respected and looked up to, and uh, I visited his condo a number of times in Encino, California. He would walk in, and uh, there would be a, a display there at the entrance area of, of Lincoln and Mother Teresa, pictures and books and so forth. You know, those those were two heroes of Coach Wooden. Well, that, that's that's tremendous uh, to, to talk about leaders and how we find and model people that we. If we want to be a successful leader, we got to study the the greatest leaders and see what those qualities and characteristics are, and try to form those characteristics and qualities. And you'd be surprised. Well, what are you looking at Mother Teresa for? She didn't make any money. Well, you, you got to look at what her mission and vision and what she where she was going in life, and then that helps in in, in so many ways. Uh, what would you say, who really, out of this list of 21, you're inspired most by on a daily basis? Would you say some of these that you really emulated yourself throughout your growth as a leader? Well, I'd certainly put Walt Disney on that list, Neil. I moved to Orlando uh, 29 years ago to help start the Magic up as an expansion basketball team, but I also got Disney eyes, and I kept running into senior Disney executives who had worked with Walt Disney back in California, and so I would always pick their brain. And uh, then I wrote a book called How to Be Like Walt, in which I interviewed or talked to just about everybody who knew Walt or had worked with him, and I was so fortunate to get to those people before most of them have passed away since. And so I learned a great deal about this remarkable man, this remarkable American hero, about his vision and how he communicated the vision, his people skills, a man of great character. He was certainly competent and bold. Oh, my goodness, Neil, he would make tough decisions constantly. 
oh, when wow. his his staff would disagree with him. But you know, he and when they did, uh, he knew he was on the right track. <laughs> so <laughs> the the bold decisions that Walt made are just staggering. And I think he had a his heart was a heart of service. He he wanted to entertain people. Uh, he wanted to provide fun for as many people as he could. And and over the years, when you think about it, uh, Walt Disney to this day has probably touched more people in the world than anybody that's come along in the last hundred years. And that and that will continue, I think, for probably as long as we have an earth, you know, he, he is never going away. The impact of Walt Disney is, uh, is just staggering. So I was fortunate moving to Orlando to really plow into his life. And it, it's made a big difference for me. Well, it seems like a lot of a big difference. Everyone needs to check out Pat Williams, uh, um, different information and see the amazing things that he's been able to accomplish in his career in in sports and and how he was this innovative thinker and looking at you in general all the different uh, characteristics that helped you become a great leader now who do you hope reads this book i know people that are want to be leaders any type of leadership position teachers anyone that has to to lead others uh definitely should read this book but who who what group of audience are you targeting the most do you think entrepreneurs do you think ceos what is your thought in this process of learning about all these fantastic leaders and well, Neil, utilizing qualities? You, but i i think i think the book uh will benefit people from uh, junior high up to senior citizens. You know, we, we wrote it in such a way that, uh, you know, any, anybody can grasp it. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's readable, um, uh, you know, for anybody, really. And uh, anybody who has some leadership potential or wants to learn more about this important art, uh, they're going to learn from 21 different leaders. And I think the key is at the end of each chapter, we uh, list the uh, leadership lessons you can learn from that particular leader. We list four or five after each chapter. So uh, I think that's helpful. People can see that and say, okay, uh, this is where I need to apply this to my life of leadership. So uh, I think that's uh, the best answer I can give to your question. I, I, th- and we, we, and I agree with you as well. We all need to be leaders. We lead as a, as, as, a, as, a, as a parent. We lead as a grandparent. We lead as uh, someone involved in the church. Whatever our leadership is, what a, whoever we're leading, because we all lead someone at one point in time, that learning these, these lessons, these lessons and characteristics and building upon them will make you much more successful in life, not just in, uh, in business or in your job, but also at home family life, all these different areas, because a great family needs a great leader, right, Pat? That's for sure. I think you uh, you nailed that one. Uh, everybody listening to us here is in a leadership position, whether you're a father or a mother, a grandparent, uh, whether you are uh, involved in some part of your church or the PTA or youth sports in your community, uh, everybody's a leader. And listen, if you do nothing but lead yourself, you're in the leadership business. So I think it's important to learn all you can about leadership, study great leaders, uh, take what you can and apply them to your own life. Uh, I I think all of those lessons are, are, are vital. 
Absolutely. So where's the best place we can find information on you, Pat? Learn more about you. Purchase your book. Where's the best place? We can purchase the book on Amazon or any uh, bookstore, but where else can we find info on you? Yeah, I think that's the answer. Amazon's a great way to order books and head to Barnes & Noble or Books A Million uh, and and get the book there or um, barnesandnoble.com is an excellent way to do it. And uh, people can always visit my website. It's patwilliams.com. And the Twitter page is Orlando Magic Pat. Yeah. And uh, I, I'd be happy to hear from uh, from your listeners. Yeah, I was checking it out and saw the tweet when you were on Fox and Friends and stuff like that. So you're definitely a mover and shaker still with uh, the responsibility of the Orlando Magic. You keep busy for sure, Pat. Your, your, your days must be – that would be an interesting thing to see a leader's day, how a great leader uh, is able to manage an entire day. I'm sure one of your 70 books you've, you've written something about time management because <laughs> you're, I'm sure your day is very busy. So thanks for spending this time with me, and I learned a lot uh, about who you are and especially about the book and can't wait to read it. This is one book that I get thousands of books in the mail every year and I have no time to read any of them. Well, this one I'm picking up and reading. So thanks again, Pat. Hey, thanks, Neil. All right, take care. I'm I'm delighted we could visit and I appreciate this very much. Well, best of luck to you. Take care now, okay? All right. Thanks, Neil. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. You're listening to Total Celebrity Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to Neil Haley's show. My guest today is again, Tracy Poisoner, and she's going to, from Undeletable Dad, she's going to talk about what do you do as a father when you're only seeing your kids a short amount of time, you have them for weekends, you're not the primary, don't have primary custody, and really make it fun for the kids, but also be able to be a father, to learn the process, to figure out what it is to be a dad, and you're not in their lives as much. Tracy, that's a challenge, right? A lot of times Absolutely. it happens because of divorce and they either are traveling or certain things happen and that mom becomes really the primary custody and it's not shared custody like that. Yeah. So that's a really good question. And I'm glad you asked it because I think it's natural for for the dad to want to make every weekend special. You want them to be happy. You want to have a good time. You want it to be special. You want things to stand out. You want it to be memorable. And it is very counterintuitive, but what kids really want, just the way they want to watch the same darn video over and over, and they want to hear the same story over and over, they want they want their time to be with you to be somewhat predictable. They want it to be reliable. And I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here because most of the clients, well, all of the clients that I work with are in a kind of a high conflict situation where where you know you have a big social issue to manage here which is that your kids are a little bit uncomfortable coming to your house because they're getting you know kind of subtle or not so subtle messages that it's they shouldn't enjoy themselves when they're with you or that it, they're not going to have a good time or that it's not completely safe at your house or that you don't really notice them or whatever so it's really important to establish a kind of a consistency and a routine so that you're just so reliable that it it just is the same every time they come to you. So what do I mean by the same? I mean that when you pick them up and bring them to your house or they get dropped off, you should be they should be walking into the same meal every time they come to you. It's something you know that they love. 
if that's the night that you want to order pizza, or that's the night that you do barbecue, or that's the night that it's dad's best spaghetti, or that's the night that you do pancakes for supper, it should be the same meal every time they arrive. So that there's a feeling of security. They know what's, you know, they know what to expect when they arrive. So that also the transition time, because you're going to find this out soon if it hasn't been a big feature of your life, but transitions are hell. The kids are hard to deal with. They're uncomfortable. They're either swinging from the chandeliers or they're quiet and withdrawn, um, often until it's almost time for them to go home. So what we want to do is manage the transition in a way that gives your gives you back more time with your kids when they're feeling good. So this idea of the routine of it, it's like, it's always movie night. We have the same supper and then we watch a movie. You can watch a different movie, but they know that it's movie night or this is the night that we always go for a swim at the local pool or whatever, you have some kind of routine where they get used to the idea of that they can settle into it. They know what's coming. They know it's hard to imagine as a kid, like we take it for granted that they're living in a kind of a snow globe. Neil, you remember those snow globes from yes. Christmas time where you turn it upside down and, and then the, the, you know, the snow falls down and it's all good. Like, it's like their life gets turned upside down in a snow globe and everything is like going like this. And then all of a sudden it's Sunday and it's time to go back when, when everything is settled down. So there's a lot of anxiety of just about like what's happening, what's happening when I get there, what's going to be like, everything feels new and different and unexpected. And you know, the agenda as the dad, you know what you have planned, but you know, Kids don't, even into their teenage years. They just want to know that it's the same. It's something that they, it's a kind of food that they like, and it's an activity that feels good, and it's the same one every time. And then tomorrow you can make some surprises or do something, you know, do something different. And I would say the same on the returning end, that you want to plan some kind of wind down time before they're going back. You want lots of time to help them pack up their things so that they don't leave something important behind at your house. You want to have a really good connection, like really pay attention time in the hour or two before they're leaving so that you make sure that you're not scrolling on your phone or watching the game in the last couple of hours before your kids are going home. That that's the time when you're, you know, reading a story together, playing cards together, tossing the football together. It's, it should be the solid connection time before they leave. The transitions are very, very difficult in anything. And you're kind of really placing it like it's a classroom. So if a father needs to really look at how to manage a household, especially by himself for that time period and really bring more routines and procedures than they're very, they're used to. And it should be the, all the same, always the same, because what if they have a, what if during the weekend? What happens to the kids? What do you mean? A what Sorry, if? They don't sure. know what they're going to do. They don't have yeah, anything yeah. planned out. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's okay to not have anything planned and to figure it out as you go. But there is a baseline of anxiety that I think we don't appreciate as much as we should as parents. And 
the, this idea of routine, consistency, reliability, this is your subconscious messaging now that you're, you are programming your kids to feel relaxed and comfortable with you because they know what they're walking into. So it's a strategy to make these things comfortable and the same. And, you know, I mean, I have a lot of it. We could unpack this for hours about all the different ways to do it. But I think what's important about what to do with your kids is to find something that you lock into, like this works really well, this like order a pizza and then watch a movie that works for my family. So you're just going to do that every single time that they come so that they just know they know what they're walking into. And the first few hours until bedtime with you are comfortable and predictable. Um, and then then we can get into the you know, all the other things about like, what are the kinds of activities that you can do with kids? Right. That's, that's another, so, you know, so we can for, do another, session another podcast, that. another podcast. On that. But what yeah. about, let's talk a little bit about then the planning session. Like it's, you see them every other weekend, right? It's only weekends. Every other weekend, there's always activities that can get things caught up as well, especially uh, if there's lots of sports with lots of kids, if there's sports or even a couple kids and it's the travel, all those different things, how you really need to be a planner as well so Absolutely. that you're knowing what's happening, the kids schedules. So you don't plan something and then there's something else to do. Yeah. I mean, you, for sure, you have to be organized, especially if your kids have commitments, then you have to know how you're going to, you know, fit all of those in. I would say among the things that you want to be planning for is time with other people who like you. I don't know how else to say that. Like other people who are neighbors, friends, colleagues, um, parents of your kids, friends, uh, people from your faith community, neighbors. You want to be spending time with other people who are interacting with you and your kids are getting to see how the world relates to you. Because again, in a high conflict kind of situation, they are hearing a narrative about how people don't like you or you're you're not somebody who has a lot of friends or you're not a trustworthy person. So again, in a subconscious way, they're getting to see that lots of people think you're an okay guy. And, you know, that your friends, your friends maybe have kids that they can play with or that the parents of their friends are happy to interact with you. So like making play, play date time, I'm going to say, even if they're, the kids are older, but like, connecting for connect at the park to play soccer or connect to go out all together to McDonald's or for pizza or Chuck E. Cheese, right? Connecting with other people who have kids so that they just get this experience of seeing other adults be okay with you. And meanwhile, they get to play with other kids and it's happening in the peripheral vision, which is very impactful for them subconsciously. Mm -hmm. Such important stuff. Uh, what do you think the biggest mistake people make? Uh, dads make on the weekend trips. I think it's weekend, doing too uh, much. Visits. To be too honest, much. I think it's trying to do too much to get too much in, to be, um, to make a splash, to make every weekend you know memorable and important. And I'm going to show how much I love you by like we're going to do all this you know like high high energy stuff, and it's understandable, like it's completely understandable wanting to give your kids those wonderful experiences, 
But what they really want is time to feel what it's like to just feel your energy mm. and just be in your presence and to, um, you know, to get to touch you, to get to arm wrestle with you, to get to horse play or, to, you know, throw football with you, to get to snuggle on the couch with you, uh, to hear your voice, like reading, reading stories. It sounds so old fashioned, but the sound of your voice, the frequency of your voice carries so much important information on it. You just can't even, I can't underestimate how that important that is. So it's like basic, basic stuff. I would prioritize that over no. the big, the big bang kind of like, we'll go to the amusement park and we'll do the roller coaster every weekend that you're here. Uh, the, the low key stuff is just as important. All right. Best place to go is undeletabledad.com, right? And then they That's can right. check everything out, uh, schedule a call with you and all that stuff, right? It's available there, correct? Absolutely. All right. We appreciate it, Tracy. Great information. Thank you. You're nice and watching to be the here. Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. My guest today is Robert P. Wills. Again, author, inventor, and we're going to kind of delve into his ability to crank out so many books, Robert. We talked last podcast and we're like, oh my gosh, you're cranking out, I'm thinking, a lot of books. You say you have to go into your office to start as a remember last time, but let's go through the process of how to write a book. Because a lot of times, you know, you, the fans of yours saying, how are you so creative? They too want to write a book someday. Tell us kind of that process of how you do it. Yeah, it's um, I'm actually, and that's one of the things. I've got a whole bunch of different genres that I'm writing in with the fantasy and then the science fiction and then alternative history. And it's funny, I get kind of get inspirations from all over the place. Um, I've got a story that I've, I've started now from my daughter's visiting, and we watched, uh, we watched um, Sound of Music. And then after Sound of Music, we watched uh, a couple of days later, we watched Mary Poppins. And she looked at me and she said, you know, there's something strange going on here. They both look the same. They sound the same. And they're both named Maria. And I thought, you know, they could possibly be the same people. So now I've got this story that I'm working on that explains how Mary Poppins could actually be, be Mary Von Trapp. And it's kind of a fun story that I'm working on. On uh, Oh, it's one person over this span of, you know, 40 years of how she's gone from one to the other. But uh, yeah, it's just kind of just out of the blue, these ideas come to me from from just all right so tell us the steps and strategy of it so let's just talk about you're going to start writing this book what is how do you start out the process because i mean i'm telling you so many people listening and watching can't want to write a book but can't because they think they right. can't go ahead. right I, and, and i usually don't do outlines um i have a friend who writes and he outlines his entire book for every chapter and i kind of don't do that uh, but I'll write little vignettes. Uh, part of the story will come to mind. So I'll write a little scene that happens here and then a scene that happens there. So I'll have these, you know, six or seven scenes that, you know, pop into my head from the story of, you know, interactions that I want my characters to have. And then I kind of write bridges that connects, you know, this scene to that scene to move them along. And I'll sometimes move scenes around depending on, you know, where they fit in the story as they go. But that's kind of how I do it. I write these little islands of story and then interconnect them with the, the writing in between. So, and that's, that's, that's pretty much how I do most of my books. They happen pretty much sequentially, but I kind of get these vignettes and then I connect them all with uh, yeah, transitions. 
that but then the process once you have it all together and you put it down to get it to publish the process how does it work for you how do you do that you know like i start thinking about like I, at one point i want to write my memoir i could love to write a book about marketing i just don't have the time somehow you're figuring out the time to write multiple books it just must be the writer in you that can just close the door and stay away from everything no text messages no uh, social media just go with the flow and write but once you have your draft together what are the next phases for you well and that's something that i learned the hard way early on boy editing is a really important thing it's very important to to get to find a good editor that you can have and if you want your friends and family to read the book that's fine but you really need a disinterested party that you have on the side who doesn't really know you be, they can they can read the books I mean, they get to know you, but you don't want it to be like a, a longtime friend or family member. Someone, someone who's on the payroll that you're paying them specifically to edit the book. Um, and that that's the I ran into that problem early on with my first known books and they were kind of rough. I had my sister read them. She's like, oh, these are great. And so I published them and then realized after a, a few bad reviews, holy smokes, I need to I need to actually pay someone to do some editing for me. Um, so that that's I guess that's the biggest thing is once you get your story done. Um, and then you send it off to your editor and then you get it back. Um, and then you're reworking, trying to, and some of the, some of the suggestions they have, you, you take some of them. And I think, no, I kind of like this character acting like that. Cause they'll say, you know, this seems kind of strange. I'm like, well, he's a gnome. He is strange. You know, that's, that's how he acts. So yeah, having a, a disinterested second party as your reader, I know we'll do beta readers as well, but it, it, it really makes it bang for your buck to have someone that you're paying to actually edit your books. That's, I think that's key to putting out a good product on the first, first go. It's so key you to put out the uh, product to the editor, but then you get it back from the editor. You got to format it. Are you the one that formats or you pay someone to format? I do. I'm actually, I've actually gotten pretty good at formatting the books. Um, I, I have a couple of um, go-to artists that I use to do my illustrations in my stories. And then one that does cover art for me. Um, and then once, they do the cover art. I'll build my own cover uh, for the books. I've gotten pretty good at doing that. Um, it, it, the nice part about Amazon is you can upload your covers as PDFs. So making PDFs is pretty straightforward. Um, so I'll usually uh, make my own covers, but I pay. I definitely pay uh, or I get other people to do my illustrations for me because I'm I'm okay at writing, but I'm I'm terrible at illustrations. It would be like a five year old drawing. So. I try to make sure I get actual professional artists to do my drawings for me. And, and that's worked out really well. I've had some really good, good artists that I go to. I've got three different, actually three different people that I go to for my, for my illustrations. Um, and then you, yeah, think, it's, it's, you think about then the process of finally publishing it. If you're self-publishing it, you got to write the right descriptions. You got to put the right stuff out there. How did you figure that out to make sure that your books can be you know, found? You know, it's funny. Uh, Writing a, a 90,000, 100,000 word story um, isn't nearly as hard as trying to write a 600 word blurb that needs to go on, on, the, on, the, on the Amazon page free book. That's the hard part of condensing your story down into you know, just two or three or four paragraphs that, that uh, want to make people read your books. I, I, I think that's the hardest part is writing a summary or, a, or taglines for the books because you got this broad story that you do. But then you need to bring it down to this. And that's 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 the hardest part. I spend 
I'll spend a couple of weeks working on those and I'll write it and I'll put it to the side and I'll come back to it and go, ah, change this and change that. Um, and then I'll have friends read it. Um, or I'll have friends read it who haven't read the book. And that's good too, because then the reading go, this doesn't make any sense. I'm like, oh, all right. So then you have to rework it. Yeah. Trying to come up with, uh, with your summary is, uh, is gosh, it's a, that's the uphill battle right there. It's totally, it's totally the uphill battle. Cause you're like, wow. At the end of the day, you're like, I mean, how do I, how do I go? How do I come up with this? How do I develop this and go? And then the keywords and everything, and then you publish it. And then the hardest part is coming out to the marketing. And that's right. because you could try multiple ways. And we can discuss that further as we're doing stuff to build out your brand because you're so entertaining and people have talked about that, you know, on your social media and your following and all that stuff how they enjoy you as a writer. But I think, Robert, when you think about things, there's so many people that don't know that writing process. They don't know how to go out and do it, but they want to write a book. Have you been on social media talking to people that want to write books all the time? I have. I've, I've uh, talked to a couple people on that. Actually, the, the local Boy Scouts, uh, I went and talked to them about it. There's a journalism patch that you can get from the Boy Scout. That's one of the merit badges you can get. So I've actually talked to the local Boy Scouts about how to write even short, and that's the beauty of self-publishing. You can write a short story and publish it yourself. So I've talked to them about, you know, how to, and I talk circles with them as the vignettes. You know, you write these little sections and you connect them together. So I've done that with the Boy Scouts with helping them get their merit badges, which is kind of kind of cool that you can talk to a group of, you know, young people, uh, boys and girls about, hey, this is how you can write and you can do it. It's not, you know, it's hard, but it's it's it, if you have a plan and you have a structure, uh, you can you can make it happen. So it was really really kind of rewarding to. To help out, help out these young kids. Excellent. Write, it, write short stories. It's fantastic. And best place people can go to find out information on you. But they also got to reach out to you if they want to learn to write. Uh, where can they go? Uh, the, the best place is uh, on my on my website, robertbwills.com. And you can you can click on contact me on that. If you if anyone has questions or is looking for advice on writing, I, yeah, I'm always willing to give out advice. So. All right. We appreciate it, Robert. Thanks again for stopping by. All right, thank you. Are you listening and watching the Neil Haley Show? And we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. My guest today is Paul Hollis, author of the Hollow Man series. You're going to talk about the contest some more. So we got some great feedback in the Halloween contest to either be Doc or Zeta, right? Right. Um, yeah, it, I, we thought it'd be a, a very fun thing to, to our, for our fans to do is to to sort of dress up like uh, for Halloweenish kind of thing. Uh, dress up uh, like Doc, not specifically me because you know that but but what you imagine doc would be from from the writings uh dress up like that if you're you know or and or um also zita who's a who's a kick-ass girl uh, uh dress up like her take a selfie send it and send it in to me and uh and we'll just uh, judge the best one wow that's fantastic so what do you think the next phase what are the next steps for the fans well, we have we have a lot of ideas uh, coming along uh, for for ideas. I'm I'm not going to tell you all of them, but but we're we're just looking to enhance uh, uh, really the experience of our of our fans and in, in, in maybe more more uh, in depth uh, dialogue with uh, with characters and you know, maybe some interviews with characters uh, and uh, so on and so forth uh, and and also get uh, read our readers uh, feedback on on what they think and, and how and what should be the next step for for the the team of Doc and, and Zeta uh, move, moving forward into book four. We'll just look at it that way. 
Yeah, and they can predict the future. What's happening next? Kind of go into that. Uh, well, we're uh, we're finishing up uh, the third book of uh, of um, for audiobook that Surviving Prague is going to be soon on audiobook this month. I think it's going to be, um, and um, and and then we're we're going to be on to, to book four, uh, which is uh, going to be set basically in the southern France, but uh, we'll we'll actually go other places. But but that's where the the home base for the book is going to be, uh, and and we're going to to. To do that so if you have ideas that you'd like to see doc and zeta doing or happening to them send them on please and, and we'll uh, we'll get them in the book all right uh another any other updates for us right now uh i cannot think of anything right now Sorry. yeah but, but how are people for the costume what do they do how do they submit this for the hall uh, so that so for the costumes, yeah, just take a selfie of yourself uh, dressed up and however you think that that Zeta should look for it to you, uh, judging from the books and or doc and uh, and just take a selfie and, and send them to my email. All right. And that is what is the email? It's Paul at the Hollow Man Series dot com. All right. Fantastic. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley show. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Climate Change, the Real Story podcast with our host, Dr. Marks. Dr. Marks, how are you, sir? I'm doing good today. How are you? Fantastic. And what is our topic for today? Uh, The topic for today is unnecessary climate change regulations. They're actually the root cause of inflation and our military decline. Okay, let's hear it. Okay. Well, let me begin with all of the podcasts that I've given are, A, my opinion of all podcasts are, but B, it's food for thought. I want people to think about some of the issues that I bring up and make their own decisions. I do not want to dictate down to anyone, but I want to bring to their attention things that they may not be aware of. Okay, let me begin by saying most every American citizen has felt the bite of inflation and recognizes our military decline uh, as seen in the recruitment of military personnel, our depletion of our military equipment as it's going to Ukraine, and we're not replacing it fast enough. Uh, and that's evidenced by the Afghan pullout and what you see in the news every day. This is not news to anyone listening to this. However, its relationship to climate change uh, goes under the radar and underreported, as you might guess. Uh, this should be evident in the current UAW, United Auto Workers, strike. Now, President Biden goes uh, over there to Michigan and he um, puts on a bullhorn and he tries to make it off that he's on their side. And of course, he's pandering for votes. But he doesn't tell them that his mandates about electric vehicles are what's causing them to lose jobs and why they're, the inflation of the Biden policies, uh, particularly promulgated by climate change regulations, have depleted their purchasing ability. That goes uh, unseen. And I think a lot of the UAW workers kind of realized the roost that he was um, he was pulling off. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is, you don't need everyone to drive an electric car. As I've been saying in all the previous uh, podcasts, carbon dioxide, CO2, and fossil fuel burning is not the root cause of climate change. You can have a nice, clean car you can have solar panels, but you will not change the climate one bit. Okay, so the problem is President Biden and the left-wing radicals, are, they're obsessed with the fossil fuel burning and CO2 as a basis and a false science. Uh, trying to link 
global warming to fossil fuel burning because it affects their Green New Deal. Come to think of their Green New Deal is, is lining their pockets with American green dollars is what they probably mean. Now, the incorrect premise that CO2 causes global warming has been put down time and again by unpaid for scientists, independent scientists, the likes of which are the Nobel laureate in physics, John F. Hosser, uh, Siegfried Fred Singer, and Patrick Moore, among others. You can look all of them up. Independently, they have said to the world that CO2 and fossil fuel burning is not at the bottom line of climate change. Now, other people like researchers like Michael Schellenberger, who's actually a uh, candidate for governor of California and has been a real environmentalist for many years. Uh, he is, has a book called Apocalypse Never. I read it. I recommend anybody to read it. I, I get no particular uh, kickback from any of that promoting his book, uh, but I think you'll be enlightened a lot and hopefully you'll be enlightened a little bit by my book, which uh, I join him because I am a researcher myself. I'm a medical researcher and my expertise, if I even have one, is that I have been able to pick out the flaws in research studies and have been one of the most active participants against the big drug companies showing the flaws in their studies and why we have so many complications of our medications. Now, that is a different story. Now, getting back to climate change, the cost of mandates against fossil fuels has been enormous. And I think you all have felt a little bit of it, but it's totally unnecessary. Yet fossil fuels by the Democratic Party have put it out there so much, it's become a uh, an axiom. It's become accepted. Now, I would ask anybody listening to think right now if I would ask you, what proof do we have that CO2 is at the bottom of this? Most of you say, well, yeah, it's on the news and, and everybody says that it is. That's not scientific proof. So they've gained this as an established axiom by a misinformed and misled public. Uh, one such example I'd like to bring to your attention, and you may not be aware of it, but uh, President Biden has committed $1 billion taxpayer dollars to get this term, climate reparations. This is money going to Somalia, Bangladesh, Kenya, and all these so-called third world countries. Now, this isn't me that's just found it. This has been published in the Wall Street Journal, been published in the uh, National Review and the New York Post. Now, okay, we send a billion dollars to Bangladesh and Somalia. From the history of that, do you think for a minute that that's going to be used to bring down CO2 in the least. Our past experience with that corrupt group uh, has been somewhat devastating. That's throw like water down the drain. I mean, that it's incredible to me and I think probably to yourself. The, the return to diversity of energy needs to be reinstilled. When I say diversity, electrical energy by solar and wind power is very welcome, but it can't replace the energy density that fossil fuels have, octane, pro procaine, all of these type of um, carbon change release much more energy uh, than electricity. So there needs to be not an abandonment of it, but an accommodation of, of fossil fuels along with uh, electrical power. Now, that, that tends to be a must. Uh, when fossil fuels and CO2 are not the cause, 
of climate change. How do we know this? I just said that, well, if you feel that CO2 is at the bottom of climate change, ask what's the proof? And they will not have it other than their, their axioms. Well, we've studied it and, and, and they show models that John Clauser, the Nobel laureate, has put down and showed how in, incompetent the model people were putting these models together with very wrong assumptions. But okay, on the other hand, put the burden of proof on, on us who claim that CO2 is not at the bottom line. What evidence do we have that CO2 has nothing to do with? I'm going to give you several. Number one, and I've repeated this one before, what does fossil fuels CO2 have to do with the ending of the last ice age? We all realize that that was a big glacier that melted and it melted completely 12,000 years ago before fossil fuels were even thought of. Number two, what does CO2 and fossil fuel burning have to do with the Roman warming period, which occurred from 200 BC to 400 AD when the temperatures were two degrees centigrade above what they currently are now. And there was another medieval warming period that occurred between 900 AD and 1400 AD. And that too was a warming period from the Roman warming period. There was a cooler period in between. It rewarmed again to two to three degrees above what we currently have. Then there was the Little Ice Age. How does CO2 interface with the Little Ice Age? It basically tells us that the Little Ice Age from 1400 AD to 1850 AD had nothing to do with CO2 either. And that was a cooling period. So um, that tells you that CO2 is not the bottom line of this warming, cooling, warming, cooling trend that we have seen that nature has put upon us. Okay, number four, uh, Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth depicted smokestacks circulated into class five hurricanes and were were visible. Well, poor Al Gore probably flunked Physics 101 because CO2 is odorless and colorless. What the smokestacks that you see are not CO2. What you're seeing is water vapor and soot mixed together. That's what the smoke coming out of the smokestacks really are. Is there some CO2 in it? Yes, but not as much as claimed by good old Al Gore. Number five, Al Gore also predicted the loss of all Arctic ice. He predicted that in 2005 and said by 2015, there will be no Arctic ice. Well, guess what? There is Arctic ice aplenty right now. It's seven foot thick. It's the same as it was in 1983. Now, the trouble is, Al Gore was a vice president or former vice president. He had influenced NASA and the UN to say the same thing. So shame on the UN, shame on, shame on NASA, shame on Al Gore. Time has proven them wrong. That's just a sheer fact. Um, now, what happened there is Al Gore linked global temperature rise to CO2, but failed to note that the temperature rise began in 1850 when the Little Ice Age ended. But CO2 rise first became apparent in the 1920s and maybe as late as the 1930s. So it's this chicken and the egg. We can never figure out which came first, the chicken or the egg. But we can figure out now easily by oxygen isotopes, um, core samples of the earth, core samples of ice, that CO2 was not recognized to begin increasing until the late 1920s and that the temperatures of the earth began around 1850. So what happened there that he didn't realize, again, flunking physics 101, is that the amount of any gas, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, 
in a liquid is dependent on the temperature. As the temperature rises, it gives it off. So most of the CO2 rise that is recognized now and automatically linked to the um, uh, to the global temperature rise, it's just to reverse the global temperature rise <coughs> links it uh, to the CO2 rise. Excuse me, let me. Getting a dry mouth from talking so much. Number seven, uh, if our government truly believes CO2 is behind and at the heart of global warming, then why are they not using a concerted effort to reforest and replant trees? That is one of the best ways to deal with carbon dioxide rather than a carbon tax. Carbon tax doesn't remove any CO2 from the atmosphere. So also a coral reefs. Coral reefs are the uh, uptake of CO2 in our oceans. Uh, they're not doing anything to reseed coral reefs. I mean, individual companies and some universities are, are trying to do that, but they are small potatoes compared to what the government could right. do. And so Dr. Marks is just basically what's happening is that just they don't, they don't want to look at other options. That's it. They don't because they're interested in we as a public accepting a carbon tax. They're not really interested in, dec in decreasing CO2. They're interested in a ploy. They're trying to put a fear into the American population. And fear is the one thing that can overwhelm true facts and overwhelm uh, current data. Uh, and and they're, it's a ploy for votes and, vo and a ploy for power. Now, the last one I'll give you is since 2005, the U.S. has reduced CO2 emissions by 13%. Have we seen this as an impact on global warming? Not really. 2023 was the hottest summer on recorded record. In fact, July is the hottest month uh, in recorded record. If we've reduced CO2 emissions by 13%, you would think there would be some impact toward a cooler summer, but there wasn't. So as CO2 reductions by man-made sources, a futile exercise other than for political gain? I think so. And I want you to think about that as you go to the polls. And when you go to the polls, maybe you want to fill up with gas as you go and stop at the grocery store and buy a few groceries. That might reinforce some of the points I'm making. Thank you. All right. That was Climate Change, The Real Story with Dr. Robert Marks. Pick up Climate Change, The Real Story, available in all different finer bookstores. Thanks, Dr. Marks. Appreciate it. It's all right. All right, take care.